0: Hi, I'm Ari Stein, and this is the 52 Insights Podcast. Have you ever wondered what we're really seeing when we look out into our everyday reality? What really shapes the incorruptible existence that we inhabit in our day-to-day lives? One man in particular has spent his entire career looking for answers to these challenging questions, Anil Seth a leading British researcher in the field of consciousness, operating out of the University of Sussex in the UK as a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience. Seth has published well over 100 academic papers on the area. You might know him as the man that has likened our reality to a type of hallucinating prediction machine. His TED talk to date has been viewed over 12 million times. He's now written his first book in the domain, hailed as a seminal text by The Guardian. Called Being You, it hopes to clarify some of the biggest complexities that plague the area and give you a refreshing, up-to-date account of where the field sits. If a lot of this discussion makes you feel unnerved and ignorance really is bliss for you, you're not alone. We're so used to this flesh-like incarnation, it can feel unsettling to poke and prod the fabric of its existence. Studying what makes us, well us, is a difficult challenge in and of itself, especially when the observer becomes the observed. I had the pleasure of examining how science is going about dissecting this incredibly difficult problem in this inspiring discussion. Anil and I walked through some weighty material that includes the myriad of theories aiming to define what makes us conscious, from panpsychism to functionalism, as well as the striking parallels between the field of science and the philosophy of Buddhism. Finally, we end up in the future, discussing the moral and existential implications that hold the metaverse and artificial intelligence together. It's clear no one has ownership on the area of consciousness. In fact, a lot of it remains up for grabs from philosophers and scientists alike. They continue to debate just what thread to pull on, But this is what makes the subject of consciousness so electrifying. Let me know what you think of this discussion by getting in touch on our social media platforms or at info at 52-insights.com. Enjoy. Anil Seth, welcome to the
1: 52 Insights podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Very excited uh, to to have you on board. And I've been familiar with your work for some time. We've spoken um, here and there over the years. And I know you are a huge influence um, within the area of consciousness and neuroscience. Someone who's been able to articulate a lot of the complexities that riddle the area. Um, A lot of people would probably know you by your TED talk, um, a good example of of how your, your clear articulation of the area. And right now, standing over 12 million people um, have have thus far been able to engage um, with your unsettling views of of how you see the world or how we see the world. Um, Your latest book, Being uh, You, brilliant read. I loved it. Almost deceivingly titled, I would say, in some ways, is a fascinating overview of where the area stands today. And I think you've brought so many areas together um, so many fields um, under one kind of roof. A heady brew of, I guess, philosophy and science. And you explore free will and anthropomorphic obsessions and scientific developments staged within the area of measuring consciousness. So judging from your book, I feel like you've illustrated so well so many unique facets of the area. But for me, I guess it dawns on me after reading it that, I and, and I say this with the, the utmost um Good intentions that were further away than I originally thought. Um, at some point I feel like, you know, I was thinking we're skating on some really thin ice when it comes to figuring out what consciousness even looks like. And I'll articulate that in some of my questions. Um, so I find the area unnerving. And I guess the more I envelope myself in it, reading your book, um, it's like a rabbit hole, you know, you're going down. And, um, you know, I've spoken to people like Donald Hoffman, who echo A lot of the thoughts that that you've um, created as well and written about. So I guess I get a sense of this thread that the scientific community um, are pulling on. So you're particularly well known for explaining that your brain hallucinates your conscious reality, something that you expand on in your book. Um, And I've been waiting a long time to kind of get a more in-depth look at that. And we'll get to your ideas around the hallucinatory machine in a little bit. But for the uninitiated, maybe we can get a sense of, um, Anil, how you found yourself compelled or drawn to studying such an area.
1: Well, thank you for that enormously kind introduction. And I'm I'm actually quite glad that you found the book unsettling and unnerving in, in some way. Th- that's part of the that's part of the objective. I don't think in the book or indeed in anybody's book, really, or any, any work on consciousness is not. That we have the solution now, but it's trying to make people think differently about the problem and, and realize that we do know a lot more. But the whole question of understanding consciousness is is something that itself is itself evolving. But to your question about why did I feel compelled to spend my career working in this area? Well, I feel very lucky. It's, I don't think it was a sense of compulsion so much as a question that's always interested me I think like many people potentially the majority or maybe all people at some stage in life usually when we're quite young we first come across or think up for ourselves these big questions about who am I what does it mean to be specifically me uh, what happens when I die what happened before I was born and then more uh, complicated questions arise too surprisingly early People, a lot of kids wonder what's free will all about do i actually have control over my actions in any reasonable way and where does consciousness come from how could it be that any kind of physical object however complicated how could it give rise to a conscious experience i think i've just been lucky to be at a time where i've been able to uh carve out a career and get paid and bring in some amount of funding uh, for doing this it's it's the last 30 years have seen the rehabilitation of consciousness science quite generally when i started in the early 90s in uh, studying physics and then psychology it was still pretty much not there on the menu and it was considered the the province of, of philosophy maybe even theology, literature, poetry. There were some fringe scientific activities, but they were very much that. But over the last 30 years, it's become at the center of the mind and brain sciences again. Of course, that's not a view universally held. Some people still consider it a bit fringe and a bit disreputable. But I think it's undeniable there's a a more general recognition now that understanding consciousness, understanding selfhood, these are central objectives for this intersection between philosophy, neuroscience, and psychology.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's, it's never really gone out of trend. I mean, you know, the, the idea of consciousness and selfhood has been, um, you know, under the microscope for hundreds of years in different guises um, coming out of the work of, of, of different philosophers, I guess, in a way as well, right?
1: Absolutely. Well, if you go back in, in history, that William James is always a gr- great reference for this because at the time in the late 19th century, philosophers were psychologists. They were just a, they embodied the same, you could get these disciplines embodied in the same person. And when William James was basically becoming the first psychologist, consciousness was very much at the heart of, of what he wrote. His, his book, Principles of Psychology, is still a standard reference for a lot of things that people talk about these days. One of the developments, though, that spurred this rehabilitation of consciousness science more, more recently was a generation of philosophers that were willing to engage with neuroscience, that were expert in neuroscience, in some cases, actually actively contributed to psychology and neuroscience. So here I'm thinking about people like Daniel Dennett and Uh, Thomas Metzinger and Tom Nagel, John Seller, lots of people who brought consciousness back into focus and did so in a way that allowed neuroscientists to understand what it was they were doing when they were asking questions about consciousness, Uh, but also made it clear that although philosophy is hugely important and remains so, by itself, I think, is rather limited. And that's always always the case when philosophy and science engage. I think they really almost always need to interact. Hmm. So let me ask you a very basic, probably very impractical question. Um, What is a thought? Oh, that's a really tricky question. uh, I'm so used to thinking about perception rather than thought. I, I, I find it difficult to know how to answer. I tend to think of a thought as a maximally abstract perception. It's certainly something that's prominent in our mental lives. We think, we ruminate a lot, not all of our thoughts are uh, are particularly useful. A lot of my thoughts are not particularly useful. Um, They have a particular phenomenology, which I think is quite interesting. This is how I always think about consciousness in terms of as Thomas Nagel would have said, the what it is likeness of different experiences. So redness has a particular experiential character. There is something it's like to experience redness. And that's very different from the experience of of, of having a thought. And if you drill down into what the experience of thinking it's like, we can again go back to William James, who said, observe that the thoughts themselves are the thinkers. If you get into it, it's not that the self is somehow initiating a particular thought in response to some stimulus, thoughts just arise and they, they pass across the surface of your mind and then they go away again. Uh, people who meditate know this very well. It's, uh, the whole practice of, of meditation, at least in some traditions, is to recognise the phenomenology of thinking in something like this way.
0: Just listening to you, that all makes sense, but in a way... It doesn't sound like it's a sufficient enough definition and it's no disservice to to you of what exactly a thought
1: is. Perhaps not. I certainly think that thought is not the same thing as consciousness. That's, I think, very important to emphasise, that consciousness, which is, for me, the centre of the bullseye about what I would like to help explain, is at least for me, it's any kind of conscious experience whatsoever. Again, Nagel has a nice way of putting it. For a conscious organism, there is something it is like to be that organism. doesn't matter what that thing is. His point, his famous paper in the 1970s was, what is it like to be a bat? You can imagine there's something it's like to be a bat without, and it's quite likely, plausible certainly anyway, that being a bat does not involve thinking. And Thought is something that might characterize human consciousness, but it's not a necessary component of, of being conscious at all. I think this is why, again, at the rebirth of consciousness science in the early 90s, late 80s, people weren't really focused on thought. And they were focused on more experimentally tractable aspects of conscious experience, like visual perception. You can just have people look at something and report what they see, and it's much more easy to manipulate and study than something like thought. But you're absolutely right that thought's part of the story, and we won't have a complete account of human consciousness until we know uh, all about thinking as well. I wouldn't want to know what it's like to
0: be the bat that started COVID. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if it was a bat, we don't know whether it was a bat.
0: <laughs> if it was a bat, yeah. So we know, like from reading your book, there are many <clears throat> abstract approaches to explaining consciousness, you know, from panpsychism, which I tend to side with more, um, to functionalism and physicalism and mysterianism, all these great, great names um, for approaches to understanding consciousness. And essentially in your book, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying you're frustrated with the myriad of, of theories um, that tries to kind of decipher or unpack consciousness, um, it 's too existential and you 're searching for a much more pragmatic approach um, w- Would I be kind of correct in, in in saying that
1: yeah that's fair i I also wouldn't necessarily call these isms these various isms that you you beautifully ran through there as theories they 're more as the sort of metaphysical positions that come before theories. And in a sense, that's why I find them a little bit unappealing, as if one has to pick your horse at that stage and, and then run with it. No, I don't think that's, that's the case. It's, some of these positions, I think, constitute easy outs to the real challenge of understanding the nature of consciousness in terms of uh, physical processes. This is not that I completely exclude uh, these other alternative metaphysical positions like panpsychism and so on. I just don't find them particularly compelling. I don't think they explain very much. I don't think they can be tested. They don't generate testable uh, predictions. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not attracted by panpsychism uh, at all. And I'm also not attracted by metaphysical positions that try to pretend in some way that consciousness doesn't exist. You know, I think it's real. I think conscious experiences happen and we know they're in some way related to the brain. This is an empirical observation. that's pretty reliable now. So the question is, how far can we get by trying not just to draw correlations between brain activity and aspects of consciousness, but yeah. trying to explain their properties? And maybe at the end of that, there'll still be some residue of mystery left. There'll still be some like, but, but like, why is any of this? associate why are the lights on at all there might be some but then again there might not be and I'm just not keen on on prematurely establishing the limits of what a pragmatic neuroscience can achieve let's do it and find out so just for our listeners I think it would be good for people thinking well
0: what the hell is functionalism physicalism Mysterianism, to give people a a, a good preface to this story, just maybe define one or two of them, maybe panpsychism and physicalism, I guess.
1: Uh, Yeah, okay, I'm happy to do that. I think, yeah, you're right, it could be pretty useful. We can start with panpsychism. If you survey people working in the field, as as actually we did with some colleagues in Amsterdam, um, it's still pretty fringe. Panpsychism anyway, for what it's worth, is defined as the position that Consciousness is fundamental and ubiquitous in the universe. It's somehow in everything. It has the same status as things like mass and and energy. That's panpsychism. It sort of obviates the need to explain how consciousness happens because it's just built in from uh, the bottom up in physics. That's panpsychism. Problem with it. Doesn't explain anything. Can't test it. Um, That's my (laughs) nutshell uh, perspective on panpsychism. Then physicalism and materialism, these are, I think, would be the assumed positions or implicit positions of most neuroscientists working on consciousness. And it's really just the claim that conscious experiences are either identical to or emerge from physical stuff, things like brains, in some way that we don't understand how but that it's some sort of like property or identical identicality with some other physical process. That's the basic claim of physicalism and, and materialism. And that's, that's my sort of working position. I don't have an a priori justification for that being true, but it's just that's the assumption you make when you try and understand consciousness in terms of the brain. Emotionally, it's not always the case. Yeah. The other one which I think is really crucial to to understand is functionalism. Functionalism is really popular. Again, most people, a lot of people assume it just thinking it just as a, without necessarily thinking about it too much. Functionalism is is a version of physicalism, but it's the idea that what matters for consciousness is not what a system is made out of or how it's constructed, but how it transforms inputs into outputs, what it does. It's it's functionalism that licenses the idea that if you somehow programmed a computer the right way, maybe by simulating a brain in sufficient detail, that it would be conscious, that the lights would come on. It's a really popular position because I think we've had this metaphor of the brain as some kind of computer for a very long time. And if you think that the brain is some kind of computer, then it's natural to think that mind is the software and consciousness is a sort of an aspect of the software. But for me, this is not a very safe assumption. Firstly, the brain isn't a computer. We can use computers to simulate the brain, but it differs from at least the kind of computers that we have now uh, in many ways. All this is to say that figuring out consciousness might not be just figuring out what the mindware running on the wetware of the brain is doing.
0: Yeah. The problem that I have with the field of, of consciousness um, is that, you know, reading your book and listening to other people over the years, it's really hard for me to kind of visualise what I'm looking at. It's almost like looking at a piece of art and not knowing it's art. And I feel like it's so riddled with tripwire, it's hard to kind of <clears throat> place the, the rail guards or the, or the parameters let me give you an example of what I mean. So you say in your book, human exceptionalism has repeatedly plagued biology and it is dark in the history of human thought everywhere. So for me, the question arises um, related to what I was saying, is it possible at all to disentangle consciousness from the human system to one which invests more in a universal picture?
1: Well, I think it's certainly possible to, to extend our uh, investigation of consciousness beyond a human to other animals this is this has been done i mean a lot of what we know about the brain basis of human consciousness already comes from studying animals from animal experiments especially uh, primates monkeys and so on but also mice rats other things too through through our apparatus though well this there is there's a yeah there's a methodological problem here that just is difficult. Studying consciousness is difficult because you can't put a conscious experience on the table and look at it. Right? They are essentially private to the organism that's having the conscious experience. Now some people say this means that you just can't do a science of consciousness, because it's not object- conscious experiences aren't objectively I guess that's where I'm getting observable to. in the same way that other things in, in science are. This I think is true in up to a point. It's, it's, a, it's a particular challenge for, for consciousness, getting the data, validating the data and so on. Um, but it doesn't mean you can't do a science of consciousness. You can still have people describe their experiences in various ways, not just by telling you in words, but by you know, engaging with experiments, the set up in particular ways to get. Some reliable view of what people are actually experiencing. You, you can do it. John Searle again said it's it's possibly it's possible to be um, he put it as epistemologically objective. That means we can we can be kind of objective about the way we get and share data about something that is intrinsically subjective. It just is a little bit more indirect. It is a challenge, but it doesn't mean you can't do the science and when it comes to then thinking about consciousness in other animals yeah it it becomes very difficult again because obviously we can't just chat to them about what they're experiencing and we have in a way no choice but to use human experience as a benchmark and then extend out from what we know about humans but that of course is 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 replete with all these dangers about assuming humans are the the centre and the paragon of everything. So there's just a tension there to be wary of. But for me, none of it's a deal-breaker about getting on with the, the science of consciousness. So this might be the same question,
0: but asked in a different way. Um, because for me, like that's the kind of elephant in the room, so to speak. You say, you know, the hard problem of consciousness seems, you know, especially hard if we interpret the content contents of our perceptual experience as really existing out there in the world, which is exactly what the phenomenology of normal conscious perception encourages us automatically to do. So I think about the myriad of tests you're doing in the book, in the labs across the world and over the ages trying to understand consciousness. And I guess the paradox that strikes me is that a lot of these tests, whether it's based on, like, neuronal clocks or prediction systems, are done in the controlled setting, which is called our reality. Again, another hint at the anthropocentric framework that that we're doing this in. So it just means, I guess, a further articulation, exploring the hard problem is just an incredibly difficult task.
1: Well, that's why it's called hard. And so the hard problem for those, just to summarise that again, the hard problem was David Chalmers, a very well-known philosopher who put this who put the intuition very clearly that consciousness doesn't seem to be the sort of thing that can be explained in terms of mechanisms, right? There are some things for which we just know that if you come up with a sufficiently elaborate explanation, then a mechanism is up to the job. Anything that does anything, like a plane flies, our liver helps us digest and cleans our blood, and, you know, all of these things, we don't, might not know exactly how they work. But yeah, okay, if you have the right mechanism, then it's fine. It's not beyond the ken of science. The suspicion is that consciousness is not like that. The suspicion is that no mechanism could ever account for the existence of consciousness or the fact that it's related to consciousness somehow. And Chalmers put it, I think, like this, that it seems um, objectively unreasonable that physical processing Processing should give rise to an inner u- universe at all. And yet it does. That's Chalmers' hard problem. The Easy problems are all the other stuff. Uh, and indeed, if you divide things up that way, it encourages you to think of consciousness as this single big mystery. Like, What is the special source that magic's experience out of mere mechanism? And this does get us back to our earlier conversation, which is, There is no guarantee that just trying to explain consciousness in terms of mechanisms is going to get us all the way. It might not. But let's see how far it does. And it might not... We might not solve the hard problem, but we might end up dissolving it. And that's the approach I'm taking. I've called it with tongue-in-cheek, the real problem of consciousness. It's like, okay, conscious experiences exist. They have different properties. Can we account for them? As we progressively do that then the hard problem may seem bit by bit, inch by inch, experiments by experiments, a little less mysterious.
0: Yeah, I got that. I I think that's a really admirable way of, of approaching it. Do you think that in your lifetime or in your career, an enormous breakthrough within this field, say, to the level of, you know, some of the great physicists' finding of the 20th century could
1: be discovered? I don't know. I, I don't. Like, it's very hard to anticipate. It would be great. I mean, it would be nice if I could anticipate it, then I'd know exactly what experiment to go do next. Um, but I don't think it's that kind of problem. It's not the sort of problem for which it's obvious that a single Eureka insight is going to do the trick. Now, I think there'll be a lot of disagreement about that. A lot of people will say, no, that's exactly what we need. We need some new physics or we need some new something. Or maybe once, once we can record every neuron in the brain, then we'll, then we'll have, suddenly it will all become clear. I'm not so sure it's going to progress like that. What I think is there will be a more gradual process by which this apparent mystery becomes less mysterious. This has happened before. Our understanding of life followed this kind of trajectory. You can say that there were certain breakthroughs like Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection was a breakthrough, but that was for a particular aspect of life, the the origin of the species. Um, But in general, this idea that life is a property of certain kinds of physical systems was was a mystery that dissolved rather than being solved by some single Eureka breakthrough moment. So for, for, for the people listening
0: to this, I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. It's, it's a process of elimination and what you say, poke, prodding, observing, um, you know, defining um, is the way that we're going to get there. Right now it's 2021 and, um, you know, as I said in my opening that you're quite well known for talking about this idea that you know, humans inhabit this controlled hallucination kind of machine. Um, it's a process of sensory um, or prediction refinement. So can you, can you give a kind of overview um, of what you mean? I mean, to me, it seems highly unsettling, um, but you, know, you have an intuition that it's, it's definitely right, that this is not the whole picture.
1: Um, I, the first thing I'd say, though, because this often gets misunderstood, which might be a consequence of the title of the TED talk, which is your brain hallucinates your conscious reality. I do not think that reality doesn't exist or that what we experience bears no relationship to what's actually out there. You know, I think there is a real world. We don't quite know what, what it's made of. Ask a physicist. Um, but reality is real. It's the way we encounter reality in our conscious experience that is constructed. And the control is just as important as the hallucination in this phrase, perception as controlled hallucination. Our experience, our perceptions of the world and of the body and the self are all constructions, but they are normally, apart from when we have mental illnesses and so on or neurological conditions, they are normally very well controlled by what's out there in the world. That doesn't mean they're identical to what's out there in the world. They're not. But they are sufficiently reined in by reality that we behave well, you know, we stay alive. And that's what brains are ultimately for. So there's a very tight coupling there. Now let's get just a little bit more into what it actually means. Like, why is it useful for thinking about conscious experience this way? So I think it's useful for thinking about Specifically, perceptual experience. So, what determines the content of what we're experiencing when we are conscious? This is as opposed to explaining the difference between anesthesia and, and wakeful awareness, for instance. When we open our eyes and look around, it seems as though the world just pours in through our eyes and we're registering an external objective reality in some level of detail and the properties of what we're experiencing we experience them as really existing out there in the world. If I open my eyes and look and see a red car parked across the street, my experience is that the car really is red, that redness is a real existing property of the car. But it isn't. And we don't need neuroscience to tell us that. Newton told us that. Colors don't have a mind-independent existence. And there's a surface that reflects light in a particular way And our brain conjures color experiences out of that. So we construct the experience of color from colorless sensory signals. And what's more, these sensory signals are noisy and ambiguous and uncertain and only indirectly related to the car or whatever it is that happens to be out there. So any kind of perception, instead of just being a readout of what's out there, is an inference, it's a best guess. It's a prediction about the causes of the sensory signals that come into our eyes and our ears and, and so on. And the sensory signals, they, in this theory anyway, they just act to calibrate the brain's best guess about what's going on. They That's what allows the controlled hallucinations to be controlled. But the contents, that comes from the top down, from the inside out, from within.
0: But how do we. <clears throat> This might be taking it away, taking away from your um, explanation.
1: How do we know um, what someone is seeing? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, this this is where it gets tough experimentally, and this is why you know in my work in my lab, I'm very keen not only to just pontificate about about theories, but try to face up to that challenge. How do we get the data that allow us to um, test ideas like this so you, you can you can do it you just can't do it completely unambiguously so for instance you can set up very simple lab experiments where you give the same data to both eyes let's say but then people's perceptual experience flips from one to the other this is called binocular rivalry and they just report what it is they're seeing which one they're seeing which image so you can in these, in ways like this, you can dissociate the sensory input from the contents of what people are experiencing, and that allows us to test some of these ideas.
0: But that, to me, still doesn't explain or give a really high def interpretation of exactly the way
1: someone experiences right. the world. Right, you're absolutely right. So that's at one end of the scale. It's that's that's something that's, if you like, very easy to control, but it's very lo-fi in its granularity it's just saying are you experiencing a versus b so the challenge is how do i account for the real deep structure and richness of a perceptual experience like you're out you're in the world there's stuff going on there's a whole the sense of a world surrounding you you have objects with with positions that have textures, that have backs that you can't see, that have volume. There's all sorts of things going on. Things last over time. Uh, perceptual experience is extremely rich. So we can approach this from two directions at once, I think, as a field. And certainly this is what we try to do uh, uh, at Sussex and my group. On the one hand, we can build models, computational models, explanations that... A richer in the kinds of properties of experience they can explain so I'll give you a couple of examples we can start to understand unusual conscious experiences like actual hallucinations when people really perceive things that are not there there are different kinds of hallucinations there are geometric hallucinations where people experience like patterns and and uh all
0: of the sacks did a nice t- talk about that
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, his actually his book called "Hallucinations" is. I think it's my favorite of his. Uh, of his whole you know, beautiful set of work. Uh, but other hallucinations, and again, Oliver Sacks talks about these very nicely. Involve complex scenes. Some of them seem real. Others, others don't seem real. And one of the projects we're currently doing in my lab is we're taking neural networks that are interpretable in terms of the wiring of the visual cortex in the brain. And we're seeing how we can use these to simulate these different kinds of perceptual experience by tuning them up, you know, twisting the knobs in different ways. Then we can generate different kinds of simulated hallucination. And then what we can do is we can go to people who have these various kinds of hallucinations and ask them to match the output of the model to what their experience is like. And that's one way of, of closing the loop between so, uh, what people experience in a much richer way than just saying it is it, you know is it a face or a house, is it A or B, and our explanations about what's under the hood there. In any sense, for me,
0: um, I meditate a lot and I believe in other areas outside the scientific domain, um, and I'm sure this is a question that's come up for you from time to time, but um, as someone who's Primarily, really steeped in the, in the in the domain of science. For what it's worth, I found a lot of the ideas in the book "Being You" um, swerving toward the spirit of Buddhism. And you know, obviously, Buddhists aren't scientists. They don't sit in a lab and they examine and observe and unpack a lot of these truths. And there are truths out there, regardless how we feel about it. Um, and the job of science is to repeat those and 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 um, define them. Um, I want to ask you, why do you think it's particularly hard to bring particular ideologies together that, that, um, that feel like oil and water sometimes? It almost feels like there's a purposeful kind of circumvention, you say, towards the end of the book. We will see how our inner universe is part of and not apart from the rest of nature. We will have the chance to make a new piece when the controlled hallucination of being you finally breaks down into nothingness.
1: Well, I think that's not a surprise. I there is a lot of parallels and I don't I don't go into this. the book doesn't delve into that context as much as I could have done if I made it a lot longer, but the parallels are definitely there and they've been there in the practice of the neuroscience of consciousness for a long time, especially with certain varieties of Buddhism. And by the way, you know, some Buddhists are scientists. There's there's um, Mathieu Ricard, a, a very uh, prominent Buddhist um, and the Dalai Lama's French translator, used to be or was trained in molecular biology and has been one of the main figures bringing together Buddhists, practitioners and also scholars with neuroscientists. There are organizations like the Mind and Life organization, which i have fortunate to have been at a few meetings with, which bring together philosophers, Buddhists, um, meditators, psychologists, and neuroscientists. And these, these meetings and this interaction can work very well when I think both sides adopt a certain humility about the ex, what they're going after. The interaction with, with Buddhism has worked pretty well because it turns out that especially among some Buddhists, they're quite open to the fact that science might have something to say about experience, about consciousness. And in fact, it seems to say something that is actually quite well aligned. One of the main insights that Buddhism tries to convey and that the practice of meditation, as I'm sure you know better than me, tries to engender is the realization of impermanence, the impermanence of self, uh, in a sense, the constructed nature of what we experience. It tries to introduce a little gap between our experiences and and what's actually going on. It's much the same place you end up at by following the the scientific story that that I'm telling about how perception is constructed and how the self is also a perception and is continually changing, even though we don't experience uh, the change. So I think it can be extremely productive. And for me, that's a real, it's been one of the more gratifying things
0: but I feel like the science community needs to open themselves up to these ideas a little more. You know, if we were to have a roundtable discussion, of course we could have it, but it feels like it's more of a one way,
1: you know, avenue. Well, it it does depend what you're asking them to be open to. So if it's a question of being open to non-scientific proposed answers for things, then it can be kind of problematic. It's, it's sort of, if, if, I, if, I am a, if, if me as a scientist, if I'm suddenly asked to be open to, let's say, the biblical truth about the age of the earth or about the idea that the soul can survive the death of the body and then appear somewhere else, or that free will has some causal power on the physical world, uh, deriving from some God knows where from some sort of immaterial realm, then I'm not so much on board. But where I am on board is where you get these very productive interactions where really the questions line up, not the answers. And to the extent that some spiritual traditions foreground the questions rather than the answers, then I think there's a, there's a lot of synergy uh, to be had. So when we're talking about um, the brain and, and where we're at on
0: your side of the table, we're also talking about <clears throat> the rolling process that you talked about, which is the amount of input that's going in and that we're, that we're accumulating. This is a kind of a bit of a strange question, but is there a way that we can tweak these kind of self fulfilling prediction systems to become a little bit more su- superhuman? Suffice to say, if we're really aware, of the input going in, I guess this kind of almost verges on the free will argument, but if we're aware of this input that's coming in and going out and whatnot, can we be aware of it to a point where we can create a kind of different type of dynamic inside our consciousness?
1: I think potentially, yes. Now, I, this is not something that I have hard data on, so this is more speculation and and, and chat rather than um, if fact. Uh, but... Certainly in some ways, right? So I think you can, easily, you can easily tweak this process by taking psychedelic drugs. That's one way to do it. Then you really shift the balance between the sensory data and the perceptual inferences that, that are going on. Um, and, of course, in some cases, this can be a very valuable thing to do. The, the clinical benefits of psychedelics, while they shouldn't be overplayed, I think is certainly very promising, Meditation is another way. Meditation is a way of really just paying attention to, spending time with the idea that, you know, noticing what's going on in the field of your awareness, rather than getting caught up in it, that changes over time, over practice. And again, I'm, I'm a junior meditator, not an experienced one, but it changes your relation to your experiences. You know, I personally, it's hard to know how I would experience things if I hadn't have been doing this line of research for a long time. But I do try and see how it affects daily life. I do you know, walk when I'm going to buy some food at the supermarket. You know, I'll think, okay, what's the relationship between what I'm experiencing now and what's actually going on? And if that becomes habitual, I think it ends, you end up in a similar place to to meditation again. We can all see patterns and things. You look at a cloudy day, like little white fluffy clouds, and we can often project images into those clouds through a certain effort of, of, of will. So yeah, it's not but it's not about becoming superhuman, as you put it, I don't think. It's about just becoming better acquainted with the contents of our own consciousness. What is your
0: best hunch um, about what sits behind? the hallucination. I know you talked about it earlier in the discussion, but if it is a Bayesian styled system and we are just prediction machines, let's just take Buddhism just just for the counter argument that it is a hallucination and we're trying to dissolve the hallucination. That is the goal. So in terms of what you you must have thought about it. What what is what what does that even infer? What does that look like?
1: Let me see if I understand what you're asking. But firstly, there's a sense in which this question of what's behind a hallucination that that I think I want to avoid uh, and just sort of bracket off as not for me anyway, not the right way to think of it. It's not as if there's an observer of the hallucination. Like the, the hallucination is a sort of movie and there's an inner self-watching um, it. You know, no, we are the movie. The movie is all the hallucination, the controlled hallucination. And again, don't forget the controlled bit. That's, that's everything. That's the world. That's the self. That's the whole caboodle. So it's maybe a question, not what's behind, but what's underneath this. What's giving rise to this? And then, well, that's where the science comes in. That's, that's the hard work to be done. There are these ideas. There's plenty of. There are many theories. There. It's not just the idea of prediction machine um, in the neuroscience of consciousness. Now there are a number of competing theories that try to explain different aspects of consciousness that have different levels of engagement with experimental data. It's a really exciting time. So there's there's many candidates. The prediction machine is one view. There's another view that consciousness happens when information in the brain becomes broadcast around other areas of the brain, widely accessible uh, to other processes. This is global workspace theory. There's integrated information theory, uh, which proposes something very, very specific about what kind of structure in the brain generates or is identical to consciousness. Lots of different ideas. And the challenge now is to figure out how to compare and contrast and arbitrate between these different different theories. So in my preferred view, looking at these things through a prediction machine lens, it's really about, okay, how do we explain different aspects of the phenomenology, the experiential character of consciousness? Can we test these? Can we actually get the data, both in terms of subjective descriptions of what people are, are perceiving, experiencing, and also in terms of what's going on in the brain? And Can we make progress that way?
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting because um, we're a very impatient species in some way, so we want to get to the answers quite quickly. Um, and if you say just for just for the sake of it, if you say, you know, there is a prediction machine or a system, and so you immediately just kind of conjure up this idea. Well, what is sitting underneath it? And I'm not talking about the global workspace or the um, the fee theory,
1: but what's sitting behind the behind. It's almost like a chicken and egg. Well, I think that one way of thinking about that is that maybe once, once these theories are sufficiently developed, we yeah. don't feel the need for there to be anything yeah. behind or underneath or above or next to or whatever, that, that it, becomes, it becomes satisfying. It becomes a satisfying explanation of the experience of being who we are. There are many reasons okay. why, but this, this we might get a little bit into the weeds here. But there's there one thing I worry about is that we ask too much of a science of consciousness for an explanation of consciousness.
0: I don't think we ask enough.
1: Well, um, I mean, we're already asking a great a great deal. But the the one difference, one interesting difference between consciousness science and let's say. The science of the early universe, or quantum mechanics, or, or something else that still has a great sense of mystery pertaining to it, is that when it comes to consciousness, we are that mystery. We instantiate conscious experiences, and we don't instantiate the early universe. And you know, although we're made of stuff that behaves in weird uh, quantum ways, it's it's not that. We feel that we are a quantum entanglement or any such thing. But because we instan- we give rise, we are in, we, we, we exhibit, we just live consciousness, then it might be that the sorts of scientific explanations that we would be satisfied with in other domains, we're not going to be satisfied with in consciousness. And then it's a case of. Well, it's, it's, it's something to think about, something I do think about quite a bit, but okay, it's a bit like what's being a bit, retaining some of this humility again about what science can deliver. It's not necessarily going to, certainly not going to instantiate consciousness. of explanation doesn't isn't the thing itself. And the fact that it's not the thing itself is not usually a problem in other domains of science in the same way it might be when it comes to consciousness and that that difference might drive some of these concerns of like what's beneath it, what's, under, what's behind it, what's really, really there. Maybe there isn't anything else. There is something distinctive ab- about studying consciousness, which is why for most of the 20th century, psychologists and neuroscientists left it well alone and just focused on things that could be much more unambiguously studied without, you know, without getting caught up in these issues.
0: You said in your book, VR is distinguishable from reality, you know, and you've done some work in the the virtual reality field. I'm really fascinated by this new area. I don't know if you know much about it called the metaverse. And it's kind of like a mix between immersive virtual reality and multiplayer online role-playing and, you know, this ready player one type of universe. And I'm hedging my bets that, you know, this type of immersive world is going to become so ubiquitous in the coming decades that I would even go as far to say as um, as crazy as it might sound that the metaverse might become the primary life source for some people and this might become the secondary life in some ways. So I'm, I'm, you know, really interested to know what you think of these kinds of technologies. How will it affect our ideas of consciousness on a kind of species-style platform, um, especially from all this kind of, development and this kind of technological reckoning what what do you what do you make of that
1: okay so there's a there's a boring answer to this and a more wildly speculative answer but i'll 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 deal with the boring one first because it's also useful and important so we use vr a lot in the lab or we, we we have been using vr for about more than 10 years now it's always been on the cusp of being brilliant without actually being brilliant yet uh it seems to be one of those technologies that's just about to take off.
0: Totally agree. But
1: still ends up with you with you strapping a box to your head, and it doesn't feel quite right. Um, nonetheless, it is one of the ways that we can, back to the earlier point about studying the richness of conscious experience. We can study much richer conscious experiences with VR than just somebody sitting in front of a, a monitor. It's very useful. So, and I think it's going to get more and more useful. Um, it is improving all the time. Uh, this is fantastic. People often use virtual reality also as a metaphor for consciousness, you know, as if almost as an equivalence to this idea of controlled hallucination, that what we experience isn't the real reality, it's a virtual reality. I think there's some mileage in this, but I don't quite like it because it it's a uh, it's too close to this movie metaphor where someone's watching a movie on the inside, there's somebody experiencing the VR inside the head. And it also, you know, when you think about how VR as a technology works, it really does take external properties and reproduce them in the headset. So if there's a red cup on the table and I'm putting a VR headset on and I want to, you know, Reproduce a red cup on a te- Then I make an image of a red cup. So I re I reconstitute the redness inside the helmet. That's not what happens in the in the brain. And in this view of controlled hallucination, there's no redness in the head. So I think it's a limited metaphor.
0: Interesting. Um,
1: but then, just to the last point about, let's assume the technology does accelerate. Yeah, let's
0: say a hundred years from now.
1: I think it's very likely to change the way our minds work, and we can we've seen this happen over quite a short period of time with the internet, with email, with video calls of the sort that that we're on. It's changing our minds in ways that that are not entirely obvious yet, but it definitely is is having an effect on how we perceive distance, how we perceive our social uh, networks, what we understand to be real or not. We have social echo chambers. Um, It's changing a hell of a lot. It's very likely that, a sufficiently ubiquitous VR um, may, may do something similar. You know, there's a worry here. Is One of the worries is that will people be unable to distinguish virtual worlds from real worlds in terms of their ethical significance and so on? I I'm, I'm, don't feel particularly alarmist about this, but I do think, you know, there's some, as with any new technology, that is powerful. There's a lot of ethical questions that... We, we don't want to be looking after a virtual cat while you know, while we don't care about a real person, let's say. Um, so there, there are ways in which technologies might distort the circle of our moral and ethical concerns that, that we should be aware we yeah. of. A-
0: and the last question I have for you um, is about artificial intelligence, which you touched on at the end of the book. Uh, we're at the very nascent stages of trying to figure out where we kind of belong in a world full of, artificial intelligence, and we should also be aware that artificial intelligence is really in its early stages um, and not as potent, I guess, as a lot of people make it out to be yet, but in a world perhaps of general artificial intelligence, what does that say? What are your beliefs and thoughts about, you know, I guess the real Turing-style test, um, uh, um, you know, of a, of a conscious mechanical soul and, and how we should view that and the ethics behind it.
1: Yeah, this is, this is, I talk about this uh, t- towards the end of the book, Yeah, I, yeah. because w- one of the main messages, things I've come to to embrace in, in writing the book and in thinking about these things is that consciousness is much more closely tied to our nature as living systems than it is to our cognitive Abilities that we associate with with intelligence, and this casts artificial intelligence in an interestingly different light. There is this assumption by some—I'm not saying by by everybody—but there's it's a fairly common assumption that as AI increases in its uh, capability, and as we might as we approach this threshold of general artificial intelligence, which is broadly the intelligence of a a human being again, we put ourselves at the center we think that's the really important threshold why should it be that? Anyhow, um, that somehow consciousness will just happen that at some point in the trajectory of AI, the lights will come on I don't think that's the case, I think that's again an example of us tying, taking ourselves as the exemplar of all these things and associating consciousness with intelligence uh, too strongly. You don't have to be smart in order to have conscious experiences like pain and suffering. Uh, And probably the most basic conscious experiences, basic in terms of when they arise in development and when they arose in evolution, almost certainly had to do with the physiological integrity of the body. There would be things like moods, emotions, hunger, thirst, basic drives. Not. Elaborate thoughts and rational deliberations. So there's a dissociation here between intelligence and consciousness, and a positive reason to think of consciousness being associated with life that I think motivates a skepticism that AI or general AI will also be necessarily conscious AI. Yeah, I really like the way you put it. I might be
0: totally wrong here, but I like the way you put it in the when you talked about Alex Garland, that the test will be, how does it make you feel?
1: Yeah, but that applies to the Turing test as well. It's interesting. The, the, there are so many crappy things that have been um, said to have passed the Turing test, you know, shitty little chatbots and things like that, uh, that it's it's really a test of the, the human. Not a, it's well, it's a, at least as much a test of the human in terms of what what are the criteria by which we think Uh, the, the attribution of either intelligence or consciousness is worth making
0: and I think there remains a circle of life there where we started which is a great way to end which is the biggest challenge that I see is our anthropocentric or anthropomorphic obsession and breaking that kind of mold will really help us in I guess answering some of these enormous questions or at least that's the kind of way I see it but the challenge remains is how do we how do we do that it's so incessantly hard because after all you know
1: we inhabit this and the machinery and we do we can't I mean we cannot change we cannot change ourselves at that level right I mean I have however much I sort of think I know about how the brain perceives color it doesn't make experiencing color optional I'll still experience color And I think the same this is the same lesson that comes through meditation as well. It's not that it, it's not that you just you feel fine all the time. No, you still have positive and negative emotions, but you just relate to them in a different in a different way. Where I think the trajectory of understanding consciousness really helps is, and we have to zoom out now to the really big picture of just how major scientific insights, when they seem to be threatening in terms of taking us away from the center of things always give us much more back in return. And we're not at the center of the universe. It turns out the universe is just so much more astounding and inspiring mm. than if it, if we happen to be the center of a fairly boring little solar system, same with life and evolution. It's so much more interesting. And I think rewarding to think of us as continuous with other species. And the same, I think again, goes for consciousness. Once we're able to, to drop this intuition, this really compelling intuition that consciousness and the self are these non-physical essences that somehow are generated or interact with the the messy mechanisms of of you and me somehow. Once we're able to see our conscious experiences as also woven into the tapestry of nature, I am optimistic that will be as equally rewarding and empowering And opening up and just broadening our perspective as these previous big changes in how we see ourselves within the universe.
0: Yeah, we'll bring on the Copernican revolution of consciousness, I say. I'm not sure how you sleep at night, to be honest.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I sleep pretty well at the moment. I get very tired. (laughs) That's how I sleep at night.
0: (laughs) Anil, it was a pleasure talking
1: to you. Thank you. Now, that was great, Ari.
0: You've been listening to the 52 Insights podcast. I'm Ari Stein. Thanks to Portico Quartet for their track, Endless, and thanks to Joel Stein of Glass Maps for producing this podcast. Sign up to the 52 Insights newsletter and subscribe to my podcast channel on Apple and Spotify to get access to my latest interviews with extraordinary people.